This bride writes into this Dear Abby column and explains what happened on her wedding day not too long ago, and then she asks a question at the very end on how she's supposed to respond. This is her testimony. Our friends and family have asked us for years why we weren't married yet. We always pushed it off to build better lives. We've done really well for ourselves and finally reached a point where we could afford a huge blowout wedding to celebrate our lives with everyone we know and love. My husband's best friend, John, was the best man and the officiant. The setting was beautiful. Everyone seemed happy. Our families were overjoyed. My mom may have used the phrase hallelujah a few dozen times. The entire atmosphere felt moving. So moving, in fact, that John stopped mid-ceremony to propose to his longtime girlfriend, Jane, and reveal her pregnancy. I couldn't even hear the vows my husband wrote or the rest of the ceremony over the noise of Jane's happy sobs. Her very surprised family who were also guests and people seated nearby congratulating her. Even the videographer cut to her frequently during the ceremony and you can't hear anything over the chatter. When John gave his toast, he apologized for being caught up in the moment and then proceeded to talk about he and Jane's future with nary a mention of us. During the reception, John and Jane became the primary focus of our guests. John even went out of his way to ask the band for a special dance just for him and Jane on the dance floor. I've never been an attention hog, and I wouldn't even have minded if he'd have proposed after the ceremony. But weeks later, I'm still seething. I'm so shocked and angry that I keep asking myself this, is this real life? My husband hasn't spoken to John since the wedding, and our mutual friends think what he did was rude, but that my husband should just get over it. My husband has joked that he'll resume his friendship when John and Jane give him a $40,000 check for their half of the wedding. Her question to the guru is, do you think John's behavior warrants the end of a long-term friendship, or are we angry over nothing? John had absolutely no clue, I guess, what he was in effect doing, right? If we could have gotten to John before John decided to, to make this announcement and to give this proposal and to upstage the wedding, we would probably say something like this. Hey, John, you're not the bridegroom. Hey, John, it's not your wedding. Hey, John, this is not your party. Hey, John. Celebrate the bridegroom and the bride and their presence. Hey, John, make much of them. Wouldn't we? You know what we would do? But John didn't have those thoughts running through his mind because it, it, it's just too bad that the John in this story was intoxicated with himself. With himself. 
And he thought, this will be a great opportunity for me to advance my agenda. Oh, this will be awesome. And so he upstages those who should be on the stage and receiving the the center of attention, and he has no clue whatsoever what he's really doing. Fortunately for us, there was another John, John the Baptist, 2,000 years ago, who said, you know what? It's not my wedding. It's not my celebration. I'm not the groom. I don't have the bride. It's his party. It's his deal. And I am so happy to be a part of it. And that's exactly the mindset and the heart that every follower of Jesus Christ should have. It's not our wedding. It's not our party. It's not our deal. It is Jesus Christ. And if we can just see him for who he really is, listen to me. It does not steal any joy whatsoever from your life. It actually gives you an increasing joy to not celebrate yourself, but to celebrate Him. To not put your spotlight on yourself, but to put the spotlight on Him. And you will have an increasing joy when you have a decreasing emphasis on your glory, your agenda, your party. That's how the gospel works. It seems antithetical to the way that we think, but the reason that's so is because our hearts are so bent that we think that we think rightly when in fact we think wrongly. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, and we are going to see that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Church, the sooner you realize that your life is not about you, the better off that you'll be, the people in your life will be, your family will be, your church will be, the better off this community, this region, and this world will be. Now, we have studied a lot about Jesus so far in the Gospel of John, and it has been beautiful, but one of the passages that we studied was John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, and that's when we were really first introduced to the full ministry of John the Baptist. We had read about him earlier in chapter 1. But in 35 through 51, all these people come up to John the Baptist. And they see the power of his ministry. They see the intensity of his message. They see that people are flocking out to the wilderness to listen to him and to be baptized by him. And they're they're changing. They're becoming different kinds of people. And so all these Jewish leaders come up and say, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are are you Isaiah? Are are you the prophet? Are you Moses? Who are you? And John says, I am a voice crying out in the middle of the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. In the midst of that, Jesus of Nazareth comes walking up in the presence of John and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I said I'm not the Christ, but there's another Christ. He's the Christ, and I'm not even worthy to unloosen his sandals. And when he comes, you will see that he is the Messiah. And this is the mindset of John the Baptist. This is the message that he has preached from day one, and he has been telling everybody around him, whoever will listen, repent of your sins and come all the way to faith in the promised Messiah. Well, 
Jesus has started his ministry and he's turned the water into wine. He's gone down and he's just cleaned out the temple during the Passover feast. He's performed miracles and and wonders that people are just in awe of him. And now Jesus has left Jerusalem. It's post-Passover feast. It's post-feast of unleavened bread. He's kind of headed out of town to the Judean countryside. And Jesus and his disciples, and in particular his disciples, are baptizing folks who are repenting of sin and following Christ. That's the setting. That's where we are. And so if you will, look down at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, and I'm going to read 22 through 30 for us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing And all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We really see three movements in this passage. And for you note takers, I will go ahead and give them to you. You see the context, the confusion, and the confession. The context, the confusion, and the confession. And I've already really set up the context for you. Jesus is baptizing in Judea. Now I'll give you uh, something uh, that you need to know. Jesus himself personally wasn't baptizing people, but his disciples were baptizing people. He asked, well, what kind of baptism was this? It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of faith in Jesus. It was a baptism that said, we want to follow Christ. We want to follow his life. We want to follow his message. We believe him. There was a distinction between the baptism that Jesus' disciples were performing and the baptism that you and I experience as believers because the gospel had not all the way come to fulfillment so that Jesus died and was risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. So there there was a distinction, but the, the base part of that baptism is similar to John's baptism and similar to our baptism. It was a baptism of repentance and faith in the message about Christ and the message of Christ. And so... Jesus' disciples are baptizing people who are coming to him because they believe in him. And at the very same time, which is interesting, John, the baptizer, is also baptizing. And we don't really know exactly how far apart John and Jesus were physically, geographically. But let's just say it's five miles. Let's say it's five miles, ten miles or so, and here they are separate, and John's preaching repentance, John's 
uh, preaching faith. John's saying, make straight the way of the Lord. And then Jesus is over here, and he's preaching repentance. He's showing signs. He's doing miracles. He's demonstrating that he's the Christ, and his disciples are baptizing. And so you kind of have them running congruent with one another, preaching the same message about the same person. That's the context. And, and it leads right into the confusion because these disciples of John, who've been around John now for years, they see John's integrity. They see the life that he lives. They see the intensity of his ministry. They see the genuineness of his love. They, they see the character that he has in private and in public, and they know that his private character is just as solid as his public character, and that the message that he preaches is also the life that he lives, and so they're loyal to him. They love him. They have an allegiance to John the Baptist because they believe in this man. And now they hear about and they see John's ministry, yeah, it's still going on, but it's the, the, the light is shining a little dimmer and a little dimmer. And they look over here at Jesus, and the, this kind of Johnny-come-lately guy, this prophet, uh, you know, John said he's the Lamb of God, but what does that really mean? And all of a sudden, people are literally, the text, flocking to him like sheep, and, and, and all, quote-unquote, all are going to him, and what? is going on in the mind and the hearts of John the Baptist's disciples. What's going on, you think? Jealousy. Envy. Confusion. John, your, your light's getting dimmer. His light's getting brighter. We put all our eggs in your basket. We, we got into your boat. We've been so faithful and loyal to you and your message. We don't understand what's going on. Oh, and by the way, there's this leading Jew that's come in from Jerusalem and he's telling us that our baptism isn't really purifying anybody and we have no business baptizing Jews in the first place and we really need you to answer that question. That's the confusion. That, that, that's, that's what's going on here. You have a purification concern. You've got a popularity concern. And so this is John's confession. Look down at verse 27. John looks at his disciples who love him, who are loyal to him, who care about him, and he looks at them and he cares about them enough to tell them this. First of all, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. It's just a principle. Now, we look at that and it's a very general principle. A person can't receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. But the before we begin to think about it in our own lives, we've got to run it through the filter of John's life. And John is essentially saying, church, yes, yes, I, I have been an anointed man for quite some time now. My birth was really a miracle from the Lord. My parents were faithful people, but barren, and yet God in His power 
um, caused me to be conceived and set me apart and I was separate from the very time that I was born and yes, I know the scriptures and yes, I have a wonderful ministry and yes, I've been blessed with the Spirit of God and, and yes, it's, it, I, I've, I've disseminated that ministry in a way that people's lives have been changed and yes, I've got some charisma about me and yes, I'm a, a good leader but all I can say is this, anything good that has ever come from John the Baptist is straight from heaven above. It has nothing to do with how good I am, how wonderful of a leader I am, what my character is. It is all about God and His gracious provision in my life. Now, he makes it as a general principle here because he knows something that you and I ought to know, that anything good, anything wonderful, anything precious in our lives comes from God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. No matter how hard we work, think of it in these terms, church. No matter how hard you work, I don't mean to put you on the, uh, kind of on the spotlight here, Ronald, but I just saw you. Did you build your house, Ronald? That, uh, yeah. Okay, you worked hard for that, didn't you? you? You worked hard, you and Justin, I'm sure Kim, and others worked hard to build your house. But even your ability to work hard and to cut wood and to measure appropriately and to gain the skills and the resources in order to build that house comes from who, Ronald? It comes from God. So even the hardest working job you might have ever done and the most gratifying job you could ever done, you have to open up your hands and say, this was from God and not from myself. You agree with that, right? Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist is teaching. Just a simple principle that everything good comes from God. And then he builds on that principles and he says, listen, guys, it's not like this should be a surprise to you. Verse 28, you've heard me said, you heard me say, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. I think we've used this picture recently, maybe in the last six or eight weeks, but when the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel advancing, and when John the Baptist talks about him making a way for the Lord, the concept that, that all these people, when they hear that language, comes to mind is that a group of servants going before a big army and knocking down all of the trees and the brush and moving out the big rocks and any obstacles that lay in their path so that when they clear it out, the army and the king can come right through that open path and go and conquer the, com the competition, the land that is seeking them harm. And that's exactly what John is saying. John is saying to his disciples, guys, you've heard my message from the beginning. You're getting tripped up on my personality. You're getting tripped up on my charisma. You're getting tripped up on my character. You're getting tripped up on the power of the ministry and the effect of the ministry and the success of the ministry, and you are losing sight of what my very purpose of being here is. It is to take the spotlight off of me and onto the real Christ, the Savior. Now, I feel compelled to say this at this point. And I've said it before in years past, and, and I really don't think it's a big issue at all here. I don't think. But it is inherent, even in the people of God, to direct their attention, affection, and loyalty away from Christ and onto their leaders. 
onto their pastors, onto their youth pastors, such that they find their hope in their pastor, in their youth pastor, they find their their identity in their youth pastor and their pastor. When they have problems, the first person that they run to is not the Savior, but their pastor or their youth pastor, because in him they find the charisma they're looking for and the answers that they're looking for and the availability that they're looking for. And they can't find it maybe in Christ because Christ is invisible and he's not sitting right beside them and all of these things. And I believe what's going on with John's disciples is the same thing that happens with us is we look to people rather than the Savior to be the Savior in our problems. And so John understands it and he's saying, look not to me. Look to Christ. It's the message I've been preaching from the very beginning. Okay, then he gives the picture. He says, the one who has the bride is the groom. Or back in those days, called it the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And I'll stop there for a moment. Weddings were not so dissimilar back then as they are today. They were actually a bigger deal. It was a more, um, as a bigger social event. It lasted a much longer time. We talked about this when we addressed the, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. But the interesting thing about the role of the best man, the role of the friend of the groom, is that he often served as the master of ceremonies, the official host of the groom, and most oftentimes, the best friend or the best man would actually escort the bride into the procession and then through the procession all the way to the groom so as to present the groom, uh, present the bride to the groom. That was the role. And John the Baptist is taking the wedding picture and he's saying, that's exactly my role. I'm the best friend. I'm the best man. And I'm looking at the groom and I'm realizing it's, it's not about me, it's about him. It's not my wedding, it's his wedding. It's not my party, it's his party. It's not my deal, it's his deal. It's all about him. And then once he makes that statement, he says, listen, I'm just here to usher in the bride. And for John the Baptist, that likely meant Israel. Because Israel was pictured in the Old Testament as the Lord's bride. And so he said, I'm here to usher them into the Lord's presence, to this groom's presence. And then what he says at the very end here is so important. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Many of you are married. And... One of the, I guess, fears of a, of a bride is that she will somehow get upstaged by the folks who are in her wedding party. I don't think that men think about that kind of thing as much, but what, what grooms and brides want to, to surround themselves with are people they know love them, people they know who are, are invested in their lives, and more than anything else, people who are going to celebrate the wedding day for them and, and honor them and bless them and encourage them and affirm them. What a bride and a groom are not looking for are friends or family members who are going to make it their ambition to make the wedding about them.
But the simple fact of the matter is, is that every groom and every bride and every wedding party that's ever existed in the history of humanity post-Genesis 3 has had sinners in that party. And so, as we discussed about four weeks ago, what's inside the heart of every bride and every groom and every bridesmaid and every groomsman is like what Phil said about 10, 15 minutes ago, there's still that old person, for those of us who are Christians, who wants something for ourselves. Be it attention, acclaim, awe, love. We, we want something. We want to be in the center. And that's a problem that, that exists with us. But look at John. John says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and sees the groom rejoices greatly. Actually, church, those two words right there, rejoices greatly, it's the basic same word. Rejoices rejoicingly. Rejoices with great joy, he's saying. And then he turns around and he pulls it out of the picture, uh, the illustration, and he says, guys, you guys who are my disciples, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Church, this is what I want you to know about John the Baptist, and we'll, we'll make some applications here. John the Baptist had his mind right. John the Baptist had his heart right. John the Baptist had his life right. And he knew that he's going to find his greatest joy, his greatest peace, his greatest hope, his greatest happiness when he's making not much of himself, but much of the Messiah. Not trying to get everybody to look at him, but everybody to look at Christ. Because when, when people are making much of Christ, he knows that he is fulfilling the calling on his life and on his ministry. And so here's your big idea today, church. Here's your big idea. Your life is not about you. It's about Christ. Your life is not about you. It's about Christ. Embrace the privilege of living for Him and you'll get increasing joy and He'll get increasing glory. Embrace the privilege of living for Him and you'll get increasing joy and He'll get increasing glory. It's the best of any conceivable world. Christian, your life is not about you. It's about Christ. Embrace the privilege of living for Him and you will get increasing joy and He will get increasing glory. Now, I have three applications for you today. The first application that I want you to make, like I, I want you to do this, acknowledge your sinfulness. Acknowledge your sinfulness. And I, I want to be very quick to say, because I understand this, very quick that, that everybody's sinfulness looks differently and, and sounds differently and is manifested in different ways. And so you may be a person, even, 
Even if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you may be a person who looks at what John did at his best friend's wedding and say, I would never, ever, ever do that. And you may be right. You may not ever, ever do that. You may have enough logic and, 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 and enough sanity to never do that. And that's fine. I'm not saying you, you would. But this is what I do know about the human heart, no matter whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we are inherently glory thieves. And so I want you to acknowledge your sin to God that you have glory thieving in you. And how you get that manifests itself in, in unique ways in your own life, maybe in your own family, at your job, in your personal relationships, in your friendships, but you find unique, creative, manipulative ways to steal glory from God and His Son Christ, to steal honor from your friends and your family members so that somehow people can be looking at you, hearing you, thinking about you, serving you. Why? Because we still have that old man who says, it's not about him, it's not about them, it's about me. So this is what I want you to do, is I want you to spend some time today, and I want you to meditatively ask the question, in what small or big ways am I trying to steal glory from Christ? In what small or big ways am I trying to steal honor from the people in my life? In what small and unique ways am I convincing myself that what I'm doing is right, but in reality all I'm doing is trying to get the kingdom of me built? And it's just not going very well. So acknowledge your sinfulness. The second application I want you to make today is embrace Christ's glory. Embrace Christ's glory. I'm not asking you today to give up the pursuit of your own glory in order to pursue the glory of somebody who's just like you or just a little bit better than you and who has just a few less flaws than you and who's done a few less bad things than you. I would never ask you to do that. What I'm asking you to do is to give up the pursuit of your own glory so that you can look at the glorious Savior Jesus Christ who is perfect in all of His attributes, in all of His character traits, in all of His actions, so that when you see Him, you see the most beautiful person who's ever walked the planet, who loves people who are unlovable, who heals sick people who are struggling, who looks struggling people in the eyes and says, I love you and I'm going to prove my love to you by healing you of your sickness, by rescuing you from your, your struggling nature, for forgiving you of your sins of which you are not worthy of that forgiveness, of helping you live a life that is fulfilling and wonderful and great. Listen, I'm asking you to trust a Savior who has said they have no hope 
hope if I don't come to earth. So I'm leaving the beauty and glory of heaven and the infinite fellowship and love with my Father and with the Spirit, and I'm going to take on the poverty and the poorness of human life, and I'm going to live the way they're supposed to live and don't. And then I'm going to die the death that they deserve and won't if they put their trust in me, and I'm going to rise from the dead so that I can show my power over death and sin and hell and the grave, and more than that, I'm going to show them how much I really do love them. And then I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to ascend into heaven, I'm going to mediate for sinners, I'm going to advocate for them day and night, unceasingly, until one day I'm going to part the clouds and I'm going to return and I'm going to call those people to myself and they will not only behold me, they will be like me and they will be perfect and holy and pure just like me. I'm not calling you to exchange your glory for somebody who's just like you. I'm calling you to exchange your glory who's just like Him. So, church... Not only acknowledge your sinfulness, but embrace the glory of your Messiah who is that beautiful. The third application I want to make is increase your joy. Increase your joy. I'm telling you to increase your joy. I don't want you guys to be unhappy. I don't want you guys to feel... um, constrained by Christianity. I don't want you guys to feel like, oh, if, if, if we just didn't have the whole Bible thing that we could be a lot happier people, a lot more carefree, a, a, a lot more peaceful, and we could be a lot better in the community because people would actually like us. I'm telling you, the, all of those things are antithetical for the reason that Jesus came to planet Earth. Okay, I want you to increase your joy. I want to read C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lived uh, and kind of had the prime of his ministry in and around the time of World War II, 30s, 40s, into the 50s. Great theologian, really. Listen to what he says. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine, he cannot conceive what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Stop settling for diminishing happiness through self-centered pursuits and start pursuing an increasing joy through a Christ-glorifying life. I did some reading this week that should do your heart well, that your pastor reads. And John Piper, in Desiring God, has made this statement. The Calvary road with Jesus is not a joyless road. It is a painful one, but it is a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and sufferings of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. We reject the spring whose waters never fail. 
The happiest people in the world are the people who experience the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory. Satisfying their deepest longings and freeing them to extend the afflictions of Christ through their own sufferings to the world. End end quote. Redeemer Church, it would grieve me and upset me if through this ministry you find yourself less and less happy. It would totally make my ministry if at the end of it there were dozens of men and women and boys and girls who put away the minimalistic ventures of happiness that this world has to offer to embrace the glory and beauty and infinite power of the Lord Jesus Christ as holding on for dear life until you're able to see Him and be like Him on the day that He reveals Himself to you. That's my prayer. That's what I want. I want your happiness. I want your joy. And I want the glory of Christ. And those two things are not at odds with one another. John the Baptist knew it. Jesus knew it. Let's get in line behind them and let's be the happiest people in our community, our region, and our world. And let's make much of the bridegroom and not of ourselves. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the example of John the Baptist. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us acknowledge our sin, embrace the glory of Christ, and increase our joy through him. We pray these things in the beautiful, sweet name of Jesus. Amen.